There will be more or less two scripture readings um, this morning. I want to start setting up the sermon pair um, that I'll be holding this and next Sunday by looking at an encounter that Jesus has in Jerusalem in the days before his crucifixion. Uh, It's found in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Uh, You're welcome to turn there and read with me. Mark 12, 28 through 34. Let's give our attention to the word of our Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm willing to bet that there aren't many, at least adults in this room, who haven't at some point stopped, had a moment of reflection, and asked themselves, What am I actually doing with my life? What's the point? What's the point to the work that I do at my job, at home, in my free time? Is is there something that unifies all these things, that, that makes sense of all this stuff that I do in all these different areas of my life? Maybe uh, you've, you've even gotten to the point of asking, why bother? What's it all about? These are questions, I think, that really belong maybe especially to the modern Western human condition. They're always bubbling up in our pop culture. And for my German brothers and sisters, I'm sorry. I'm about to hit you with 90s American movies. One approach to this you find in City Slickers, early 90s Billy Crystal movie, uh, Mitch Robbins, a New Yorker, and, and he's sort of stuck in this mode of what's it all about, what am I doing with my life, and so he goes out on a cattle drive to get away and try to figure out his life, and he meets the old cowboy Curly, played by Jack Palance, and, and Curly says, you know what the secret to life is? This. Mitch says, your finger? He says, no, one thing. Of course, Mitch asks him, what's the one thing? What is it? And Curly says, that's what you've got to figure out. And 
by the end of the movie, not to spoil it too terribly, he does, right? And it was, it was inside him all along. All along he really knew. Sometimes you get movies that are, that are more nihilistic. Um, Fight Club, which is basically about men who are bored and they do not get the point of what they're doing and they deal with it by gathering in a secret club and beating the living daylights out of each other. And it starts as just that. It's got a few simple rules, right? You do not talk about Fight Club. And it spirals out of control. It becomes this movement that's out to burn the modern world to the ground. And on that account, there's really no sense or point to life. You're not going to find any. You have to do your best to have your needs met, and that's probably going to lead to boredom, consumerism, mindlessness, or it's going to lead to violence and death and destruction. In their own way, the Jewish people of Jesus' time, they're asking their own version of this same question. What's it really all about being God's people? For a variety of reasons. And this encounter that Jesus has with this scribe, it, it fits right into this. He's being questioned by the leaders of these different Jewish movements and sects. And these people, each movement, each group, they have their own answer to this question. For the Pharisees, we are maybe familiar with them from, from Sunday school. They want to enforce their tradition's interpretation of God's law. They want to remove the influence of Greek culture, purify the people. The Sadducees want to keep the, for them, very profitable temple system running by staying on good terms with their Roman rulers. And both of them come to Jesus, and they want him to pick a side. They want to corner him into coming out as one or the other of them. And when this scribe sees how Jesus answers them, how he won't get caught in these traps that they set, then he asks his own question. He asks an honest question for once. He asks, what do you say that it's all about, being God's people? And what Jesus says it's all about, we, we call the great commandment, he says, we are put on earth for this, to love God with our whole heart and our neighbor as ourselves. He doesn't say that we've known the answer all along, if only we will look within. He doesn't say that we can't know, and that we have to just do the best we can to get by. No, he says that God has actually given us an answer if we pay attention to what his word says. He names two very specific texts, Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. And today and next Sunday, I want to look at these verses in their original context, try to better understand why does Jesus point to these commandments to say that they're the greatest, and hopefully we'll come away understanding better how these commandments make sense of our lives as humans and especially as Christians. So we'll look this Sunday 
particularly at the first and great commandment. And if you have a Bible, I would uh, very much recommend that you open up Deuteronomy chapter 6. I'll just read the verses that Jesus quotes and the ones immediately following, but we'll be looking really at the whole chapter in its context. So let's once again open our ears and our hearts to God's word. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So many of you here are Americans like me. If someone were to ask you the now rather controversial question, what is America all about? What is being American all about? You had to answer on the spot. I, I don't know about all of you. I think there's a fairly good chance that a lot of us in the room might go back to a bit of the Declaration of Independence that we memorized in school. We would say, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That's exactly what, for example, Abraham Lincoln did in his Gettysburg Address almost 160 years ago. And when Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, as an answer to the scribe's question, it's a little bit like if he did that as an American. These verses uh, are known in Jewish tradition as the Shema, uh, from the first word of verse 4, the Hebrew word for hear. It's the most basic Jewish confession. Traditional observant Jews will recite this three times a day. The most basic confession is that the Lord, the God of Israel, is the one true God. And the passage's place in the book of Deuteronomy shows us its importance as well. Moses is speaking these words, and he's just retold the people of Israel their history, how they got from the desert to the doorstep of the promised land. More specifically, he's just retold the story of how God gave them the Ten Commandments, the the summary of his whole law for them, with his own voice from the mountain, and how terrified the people were to hear God speaking his word to them. And from here on, uh, for another 20 chapters, the most of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is going to explain what it will look like, what it will mean for Israel to keep these Ten Commandments in the land that God is finally bringing them into. And he begins with this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And it's not a complicated command, but its demands are absolute. They are radical. It says, very simply, you are to love God. 
You are to be devoted to him. You are to choose him and not any other so-called God. You are to do the things that please him because he is your God. You are to do this completely with no mixed motives. When the Bible talks about your heart, especially the Old Testament, it's talking about where you make your decisions, where your intentions and your plans come from. You're to love God with no reservations. Your soul is really just who you are on the inside, most basically. And especially, it points to the desires, it points to the longings, the motivations for our behavior. You're to love God with no limits. This word that's translated might uh, is usually not a noun. It's, it's not a thing. It's a description, an adjective or an adverb that means much or very. So you're to love God with all your muchness. means you can never say, okay, that was enough. I've loved God. Check. And now I can go do something else. No. You love God completely with no reservations and no limits. And in the following chapters, there will be very specific rules about all sorts of things. Um, What animals the Israelites can eat, how they are to celebrate their festivals, what kind of king they can set over themselves, how to conduct themselves in battle, how to deal with property and inheritance, divorce and finance and all sorts of things. So what is it about this first simple commandment That makes it the anchor that holds all the rest in place. I want us to just see two aspects of this. First, it focuses our attention on who God is. And second, it shows us the purpose of God's law for us. It focuses our attention on who God is. shows us the purpose of God's law. First, it focuses our attention on who God is. So what's the answer? It's in verse 4. First, God is one. We shouldn't skip over this. For the people hearing this for the very first time, this was not a normal thing to believe. And it was deeply, deeply liberating for them. Okay, one more 90s movie. The main character in the comedy Office Space has a terrible job. And one reason that his job is so terrible, he explains at one point, is that he has eight different bosses. He has eight different bosses to criticize him if he makes a mistake. Eight different bosses who all have their own agendas. They all have their own expectations of him, and some of those contradict each other. And this is what it's like on a cosmic level if you believe that there are many gods. There are all sorts of spirits and beings out there. These are beings who govern all these different areas of your life and the world. All of them are more powerful than you, which means that they can make your life better or they can make your life miserable. Or they can take your life away. And all of them want different things and all of them are offended by different things. And God steps into this world that just is like this. And he says, 
forget all that. You have one boss. You have one Lord. Only my opinion matters. And I will provide everything that you need and I will protect you from every other spiritual power. Now, the fact that we know who the one true God is doesn't actually mean in itself that he wants to do any of that for us. But the Israelites have a very good reason to believe that that is the case. Who is God? God is the Lord, your God. And again, this, this simple word, your, is not a minor detail just thrown in there. The Old Testament has three basic answers that pop up again and again. Look for them as you read through the Old Testament, which you should, to the question, who is the true and living God? If you want to know what the Old Testament says, who the true and living God is, the first answer is he is the God who made heaven and earth. You see that, uh, for example, in the book of Jonah, when Jonah is answering the sailors about where he comes from and what God he serves. He say, says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Second, the Old Testament says he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here it starts to get interesting. This is, this is how God introduces himself to Moses when he appears in the burning bush. And it comes up again in this chapter. You'll see it in verse 10. God is pointing back to his promises to these specific men. And third, he is the God who brought Israel out of Egypt. And these things are repeated again and again. And this gets pride of place. This is how the Ten Commandments begin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It's in Exodus 20, and it gets repeated in the chapter before this, when the Ten Commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5. So what does this, what does this mean? It's, it's astonishing, if you really stop to think about it, the Almighty God, the creator of heaven and earth. He identifies himself. He names himself by his relationship to human beings. And, and, and if you really, really think about this, the God who has no beginning, the God who will have no end, the God who made everything and apart from whose will, nothing would continue to exist at all. He names himself with the names of people who lived 70, 80, okay, 130, 180 years. What's that? In the big picture, compared to a tree, you and I don't exist. We are here one day and gone the next. Compared to a mountain, a tree does not exist. Compared to the living God. What's a mountain? Look up in a concordance what the Bible says about what happens to mountains when God shows up. And this naming himself with reference to human beings, that is exactly what we mean when we talk about covenant. That's what that word in the name of this church comes from, this relationship that God has to a particular people 
and that he defines by his word and by the signs that we in our tradition call sacraments. So the Lord who gives us his law, the Lord who commands us to love him is the God who has revealed himself as our God, as God for us and God with us. That means that our love for the Lord is rooted in the relationship that we have. A relationship that is created by his salvation and it is built on his promises. Over and over in chapter 6, if you read through, you'll see reminders of God's salvation. You see it especially at the end in verses 20 through 25. When... The Israelites are told how they should explain to their children in the future when they ask, what's it all about with all these rules? And the answer is, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Now, right from the time we were created, we have always depended on God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, what we could never earn from him. And since our first parents sinned, since they disobeyed him, we depend on him not only to create us, not only to keep us in existence, but but actually to rescue us. Because this disobedience becomes a power that rules us, that keeps us separated from him. And death and the fear of death are our prison. And now we're dealing with something that God needs to do for us that we we not only cannot earn, but we've earned the opposite. But God promises to save us. Why? Because of his love. It's the Bible explains over and over again most classically and maybe the most memorized verse in all of scripture John 3.16 for God so loved the world and his love is not like ours It, it never fades it never grows cold and we know his love through his salvation That's what John means when he writes that we love because he first loved us. Relationship is founded on his salvation. It's built on his promises. As I've said, he has already kept promises by saving us in the first place. For the Israelites, it was promises that he made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, their, their fathers. But by saving us, He brings us into a relationship that is defined by more promises. Promises that haven't yet been completely fulfilled. There are promises for Israel of blessing. Look at verses 2 and 3. If they will be obedient, it will go well with them. They will multiply greatly. They will live long. They will continue to receive God's unearned gifts. He talks about cities you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, cisterns that you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And there are also warnings. If Israel was faithless, they would be destroyed by God's jealous anger. 
But, but the basic tone of this passage, the basic note that the passage is striking is that we love God not only because he has loved and saved us already, but also because in his love he promises us a glorious future. And we know that this is a God who keeps his promises. And we love him for it. The great commandment focuses our attention first on who God is. And second, the greatest commandment shows us the purpose of God's law. What does love look like in Deuteronomy 6? It's an interesting thing. What is God's law there to teach us to do? Most basically... It's teaching us to remember. That's where it goes. First off, in verses 6 through 9 that I I read earlier, it says, teach these commands diligently to your children. Talk about them wherever you are, whatever you're doing, all the time. Build these words of God into every area of your life. And the great danger that God describes for Israel in this chapter It's not just rebelliousness, that was a problem, but it's forgetfulness. You see it in verse 12. Israel's going to come into this land, and when everything is going their way, it is going to be so easy for them to think, this is just how the world is. This is how it's supposed to be. This is what we are supposed to have. They'll forget that it is a gift given by the all-powerful God who has rescued them and given it to them. And it's forgetfulness that's going to lead them into idolatry or into testing God, as you see in verses 13, 14, and 16. It's forgetting that no other God could ever stand against the God of their fathers who humiliated the most powerful king of the ancient world and all his gods. It's forgetfulness that God never once failed to give them what they needed even in the driest desert. Maybe you've heard people sometimes say the opposite of love isn't hate, but it's apathy. It's not caring. Uh, There's something to that because we see something very similar here. The opposite of love, at least in this chapter, it's not hate. It's forgetfulness. It's forgetfulness. And, And this is the purpose that we see for every command of God. He doesn't need us to do anything for him. And he is not just a spoil sport. He doesn't sort of have mindless prejudices against the things that we would like to do. No, he gives us these laws to remind us of who he is and of who we are. There's really no accident, I think, that in many languages, certainly both in English and in German, just like in Hebrew, we talk about keeping commandments, keeping rules or laws. Now, it does mean obeying them, More basically, it means holding on to them, right? It means guarding them. It means making sure that they are with us every day of our lives, that they don't get lost and that they don't get forgotten. And we need to do this. 
because these commands always direct our attention back to the God who made us, who loved us, who saved us, and who will one day bring us to glory. They remind us of him. That's why we keep them. But Jesus did not come just to point to Deuteronomy 6.5 and say, do that. We, we, we absolutely cannot forget what he came to do just days after he spoke these words. If we belong to Jesus Christ, we know, especially from the Apostle Paul, that we're not under law, but under grace. We know that Jesus came for exactly this reason, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be counted as sons of God and not as slaves who just always do what they're told. Paul insists, actually, that the law was given not to give life, but to imprison everything under sin. You can find that especially in Galatians 3 and 4. And still, it's clear from the whole Bible That this commandment and the second, which is like it, which we'll look at next week, is what God requires of us. It's what he wants from us. So what do we do with that? It's common in our theological tradition that comes from the Reformation to speak of three uses of the law. It's, It's three effects that the law is meant to have. We can maybe put it this way. It's three things that the law doesn't let us forget. First, the law keeps people at least outwardly in line. It reminds us what the rules are. And in ancient Israel, whether you were an Israelite or a foreigner living among them, whether you were truly faithful or just a hypocrite, you would know that only one God was to be worshipped in Israel. And you might very well keep that law. At least you wouldn't build an altar to some other god and sacrifice on it, if only to stay out of trouble. That didn't really always work that way, but it could work that way. And that's not salvation. It isn't. It's not an eternal good, but it is good. It is better for people not to sacrifice their children to Molech than to do that, right? The first use of the law, it reminds us of what the rules are. Second, it convicts us of our sin and drives us to Christ. And maybe some of you have heard this before. It reminds us of our failure. The Israelites, not to spoil the Old Testament too much, they were condemned by the law. Not because they messed up fine details of sacrificial procedure, but they broke every single commandment they could find, enthusiastically. But even the most faithful Israelite, and we think of of people like King David, whose words we sang before the sermon. If the most faithful Israelite there was seriously meditated on this commandment, which the passage tells him to do, he would have to ask himself, Do I really? Do I love God with every part of my being? Do I love him completely, all the time, in every way, as he deserves to be loved for all that he has done and is doing for me? 
And the answer for this hypothetical Israelite would be very clear, and it's the same answer that we would have to re- uh, reach. No. No. Not even close. And the law brings this realization to us. But our hearts are twisted. And what they do with this realization is that we want to try then to fake it. Or maybe we want to exchange God's standard for our own, something that we know we can achieve. Maybe we just want to rebel even more against Him. We're bitter. We resent him for asking something of us that we can't or won't give. In that way, the law actually stirs up our sin, the way Paul writes about in Romans. But when God's spirit is at work in us, it has another effect. We cry out for mercy. We look to God for the forgiveness that we know we don't deserve And when we hear his word, we find it. We find the answer in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. So the law reminds us of our failure. But in that way, it reminds us of our need and it reminds us of our Savior. And third, it does teach us how to live as Christians. It does what we saw In the first point, it focuses our attention on who God is. It helps us to remember him in everything that we do. All three of these uses are good for us. They're good for the world. Help us to see that God's commandments are holy and righteous and good, even when they don't bring life, even when they cause us pain by forcing us to realize that we are not holy and righteous and good ourselves. But we're called not just to respect God's law, but to love God's law. You see that in Psalm 1. You see it in Psalm 119, that longest psalm, over and over again. And we can't get there unless the gospel has transformed our relationship to the law. Recognizing our sinfulness has to lead us to Christ. And in him, There we see the great commandment for what it really is in all of its beauty, in all of its glory. It reminds us how good and beautiful it is to love God. I hope that you've known some people who love God in a way that you just can barely imagine yourself loving God. I've known a few of them, mostly older people people who've walked with with Jesus for a really long time. And and the picture of this love that I have in my head is is people who always, first thing they want to know in a conversation is, what has God been teaching you lately? What's God been doing in your heart lately? There is nothing that gives them more pleasure. And you can see that pleasure. You can hear it in their voices. To hear about someone coming to faith. To hear about prayers answered. You just see that delight in them. I, I think as a younger man than I am now, I, I think it was easy to be a little bit embarrassed by that enthusiasm. Just this, this sincerity, this, this single-minded delight in who God is and what he does. That, that's an embarrassment that does not come from the Holy Spirit. 
I think the longer I live as a Christian, the more I hope that I'm becoming a little bit more like that year after year. Because in the end, what that means is to become more like the God who is love. We're reminded when we're in Christ and look at the commandment how worthy God is of our love, of being redeemed from Egypt by God's power, was most certainly all that the Israelites needed to know that God loved them and was faithful to them. Jesus himself says, though, nothing shows love more clearly than that someone would lay down his life for his friends, maybe especially when they're people who do not deserve to be his friends. Someone who helps and serves undeserving, ungrateful, hostile people in the one way that they could never help themselves. If you are a Christian, that is what God has done for you. That is how God feels about you. That is how dedicated the creator of heaven and earth is to you and your good. And as we see this, we start to see our love for God not just as a requirement, but as a promise. It reminds us of our future. It reminds us of our future because Jesus did keep this commandment. He did it to the bitter end and beyond the bitter end to the beautiful end. He loved God, his Father, so completely that he would rather drain the cup of God's judgment than to save himself. But the result of that was that he received the promised blessing once and for all can never be taken away. Jesus Christ lives. We're in the Easter season remembering this right now. As the world around us comes back to life after winter, Jesus Christ lives. His days are eternally long. Not just one land, but the nations are his inheritance. His righteousness, the way it's talked about in verse 25 at the very end of this chapter, his righteousness is perfect. It is fulfilled. It is acceptable to the Father, and that is the righteousness that is ours in him by faith. That is the righteousness that will be perfected in us when Jesus returns. By his grace, we're reminded again and again of who God is, of how worthy he is of our love. We're driven to give up any notion of pleasing him by our own power or goodness, but to cry out for mercy and forgiveness. And we are reminded again and again that we have a promise still to be fulfilled that one day we will love him. We will love him with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength forever and ever. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that your law, that your commandment is holy and just and good. We confess to you that we are not in ourselves, but we thank you that we are that in Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we thank you for this commandment that is transformed for us
by his love that he has poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that this love would grow in us from day to day, that we would walk in it, and that one day you would bring us home to you to experience what undying, unfailing love really is for all eternity. We ask it in his name. Amen.